Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. And there I am, you may be also. So Christ is leaving. And Casey preached an encouraging and challenging message on these verses last week where we saw the cure for the troubled hearts. We saw how Christ was getting ready to face the worst sort of suffering. And to our amazement, who was he focused on? Where was his attention? On the disciples, right? He was burdened for his beloved friends. Can you imagine? Christ is about to experience the worst fate of any human, severe torture, horrific death, separation from God, facing the wrath of God, and who is he focused on? He's not focused on his near tragic future, but saddened, burdened for those he is leaving behind. Christ puts the disciples' troubled hearts ahead of his own suffering. How we could just stay on this point today and remember what kind of love Christ has for his own, for his own children, for us. As we face troubles, as we face struggles of many kinds, Christ is there. His love is working actively on our behalf. Christ's love penetrates through the darkest of circumstances. Christ's love overcomes the worst of troubles. Not by always changing the situation, but by transforming us. By changing our hearts for his glory. And today we turn our attention to the next few verses. So you can open your Bibles to John 14, where we'll be in verses 4 through 11. John 14, verses 4 through 11, where I've entitled this message, The Answer is Always Christ. So as we begin, let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we come to you this morning. As we've sang, Father, we ask that Christ really be enough for us. As often it seems, we chase after everything but Christ. We get distracted. We look to the things of this world. We look to ways to fulfill our flesh. Forgive us, Lord. May we be people who repent of such wickedness and live for your glory and recognize and truly give all of ourselves to you and live for Christ alone. In Christ's name, amen. So Jesus said in verses 1 through 3 that he is going to prepare a place for his disciples in heaven. And then he continues in verse 4 and he says this, And you know the way to where I am going. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So let's think about this for a moment. Christ's imprisonment is on the horizon 
And we find out still that the disciples are clueless to what is going on. Again, Jesus is going to prepare a place for all of us, right? The Father's house. In verse 4, it says, You know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas instantly pipes up in verse 5 and says, Lord, how do we know the way to where you're going? So some of us may want to just put our hands over our faces and just shake our heads in utter disbelief, possibly a little annoyed at the slowness, the lack of understanding the disciples have even up to the very end of Christ's imprisonment. I mean, they've walked with Christ for three years now. And still, they don't understand the basics of who Christ really is. They don't realize that he will rise from the dead. And as we just have read, they still don't even understand that he's going back to the Father, even though he just told them that a sentence or two ago. But I must say, it is always easier being an armchair quarterback. I mean, I have to admit it. I've called some amazing plays in football and basketball from my lazy boy. But in reality, it's easy to call the shots from our living room or give the right answers knowing the rest of the story, right? So I think we need to have some humility and give the disciples a break. Cut them some slack. Because if we pulled the focus off of the disciples and we looked at everyone else in the first century, okay, let's, let's do this. Let's say we could interview every person in the first century, who had some knowledge of Christ. I wonder, out of all the first century folks who knew something about Christ, if I wonder who actually knew more than the disciples. I mean, we see that those in Christ's hometown and even his own family didn't believe in him, right? We recognize that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish experts, the Jewish leaders didn't believe in him, most of them. We see that even the crowds, they love Christ so much that after every time he was done preaching, they either wanted to stone him or throw him off a cliff. So yes, in some ways, the disciples' knowledge of Christ was very small. It was limited. But compared to everyone else around them, they knew a great deal about Christ. We have to give them some credit. But what is really interesting to me is the fact that Christ continues to patiently teach them. He patiently trains them. He patiently shows such love to disciples, regardless of their blunders, their wrongdoings, their mistakes or misunderstandings. Christ continues to stand by these men, regardless of the problems he sees in them. It reminds me of the saying that there are no wrong questions. And with Christ, it almost seems he takes this approach with his loved ones, the disciples, as he doesn't give up on them when they give the most ridiculous responses to his questions. Christ works with them like a parent nurtures and works with their own children. This reminds me of a story. This reminds me of trying to work with my two-year-old. 
And this is great because I have an illustration from last week. Last week, Joby, our two-year-old, was eating some hummus and chips. And when we weren't looking, he decided to put his hands into the hummus and then wipe his hands all over mommy's favorite blanket. And then he proceeded to go to daddy's favorite chair and do the same thing. And at first, I did the wise thing, and I went to my two-year-old, and I said, What are you doing? And I deserve this, because I should never ask a two-year-old what he's doing, right? He turned to me and pointed at the blanket and, and said, Daddy, it's like a big napkin. And at that moment, I was tempted to sin, I must admit, but instead, I tried to be patient with little Joby and talk to him about using his napkin that was on the table next to his silverware. But what if I reacted differently to little Joby? What if I told Joby I was sort of done with him altogether? What if I said this? You know what, Joby? I'm tired of your messes. I'm really sick of cleaning up after you. I mean... The house isn't a giant napkin for you to wipe your mouth and hands on everywhere you go. Not only that, Joby, but you know what, bud? You're two and a half years old, and you're still not potty trained. I mean, that's not our faults. So since you're messy and you still are in your diapers, well, you know what? I think we're going to have to send you to Uncle Johnny and Aunt Rochelle's house. They've got five kids already. If we throw another one in the mix, they're not even going to realize you're even there. I mean, if I responded that way to my two-year-old, you would think I should be put in jail for neglect. I mean, who would do that to their child? But I ask you seriously, why wouldn't we do that to our children? Why not? I mean, life would be so much easier. No more salsa or hummus or jelly messes. No more waking up at 2 a.m. in the morning because there's a monster in the fan. Or no more, you know, sneezes in the face. No more whining and crying. No more whining and crying. No more whining and crying. Did I mention the whining and crying? Well, I will tell you, why we won't give up on our children. It's not because of their wonderful personalities. It's not because of their stellar obedience. It's not because of their super helpfulness. It's because they are ours. They are our children. God has loaned them to us. He has placed them in our care for a time. They have our hearts, church. We will sacrifice pretty much anything, including our very own lives, for our children. Amen? And this is what we see with Christ. This is what we see with Christ. A love that shows that the disciples are his. He takes ownership of them. In John 17, Jesus is talking about the disciples with the Father in heaven. And he says this in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. 
So Jesus says, the ones you gave me, the disciples, I taught them about you, Father. They were yours, Father, but you gave them to me now. The disciples had God's heart, like our children have our hearts, right? Which leads to point number one. We have God's heart. Point number one is really great news because we have God's heart. Those of us that are in Christ Jesus have God's heart. The question is why? Why do we have God's heart? Maybe. The Father chose us before we were in Christ because he saw that we were like super special. Or maybe it's because God realized we were better than the others. Or maybe it was because God saw how good we are on our own. He looked and saw Luke before he came to Christ and said, wow, this guy's a good guy. Or, or, or Johnny or whoever. And he looked at them and said, these are going to be some great folks. So he allowed us to be his children. He saved us because we were so remarkable before we came to Christ. That sounds really great, right? The problem with this idea is that being good or special before we come to Christ is that it contradicts all of what the word of God says about us. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. Here it says that God's love was poured out on us when we were at our worst, when there was nothing authentic or great about us. We weren't saved because of our goodness, because there was no goodness to be found in us, the Bible says. We were enemies of God, living for ourselves, living like we are our own gods, instead of living for the one true God. So the question still remains then, why we have God's heart then. Well, our next passage tells us. John 14, 6 goes on, and Jesus says this. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus says, all who follow me, all who are drawn to the Son will have the Father as well. So Christ is the one that allows us to be approved by God, we find out. We have the heart of God if we are in Christ Jesus this morning. That's some good news. Amen? So it's not about our efforts or about our giftings or about our abilities to obey God, but on Christ's finished work on the cross that deemed us righteous in the sight of God. Period. You may be thinking, Okay, I understand that. People are saved when they repent and believe in Jesus Christ. I understand that. But what about all those that don't follow Christ? What happens to them? I mean, surely there are other ways to be saved. There are so many other avenues and choices to, to choose from besides Christ, right? Well, I would ask us to look at our scripture again. I am Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Christ makes it crystal clear that the only way to the Father, to God, is through the Son. Which leads to point number two. Christ is the only option to God. 
Point number two says that Christ is the only option to God. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says this. He is the way. He doesn't say he is a way. Jesus says he is the truth. He doesn't say that he is a truth. Jesus says he is the life. He doesn't say that he is one way to life. In Jesus, we find the only way. In Jesus, we have the only truth. In Jesus, we find the only way to true life. Amen? Jesus makes it abundantly clear, not all have the Father's heart, but only those that are in Christ Jesus. The question is, are we in Christ Jesus this morning? Have we turned to Christ in repentance and faith? Repentance means to change the way we think and act. This means we turn from trusting in ourselves and turn to Christ and trust him wholly and fully with all of our hearts. So those of us who have turned to Christ in repentance and faith are revealed to be children of God, just like the disciples. So the next question again is, what happens then to those who don't follow Christ? What happens? Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, he says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So Jesus says, if we aren't submitted to him, then we are still headed down the wide road that leads to destruction. But what is destruction? In our passage, destruction is referring to hell. Hell is a very real and horrifying place. And Jesus says, it is where the majority of people are going without Christ. Well, it's where all of them are going without Christ. That means all the nice people of the world without Christ, the good humanitarians without Christ, the devout Jews without Christ, the serious Muslims, the Hindus, those that are in cults like Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons are headed all to hell because they are without Christ. Without Christ, no one will go to heaven. No amount of human effort, no amount of good works will get anyone to heaven without Christ. Brothers and sisters, if we love others, if we care for those around us, this should really burden our hearts knowing that many are lost. What about our friends? What about our families, the co-workers, acquaintances, who we know that are without Christ? Do we know that without Christ they are going to spend an eternity in torment? I say this not to threaten us or to be harsh, but for us to see the reality, the seriousness of what will happen to those who are without Christ. Romans 10, 14 says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? I wonder who has God placed strategically in our path to be able to fulfill Romans 10, 
14. I mean, who's supposed to share Christ with your friend that you hang out with? Who's supposed to share Christ with your aunt that you go to lunch with? Who is supposed to share Christ with your grandma that you visit with every Saturday? Who is supposed to share Christ with your coworkers that you see every day? Has not God placed certain people in our lives for a reason? If we won't share the most important news with our loved ones, I ask you, church, who will do it then? Who will be the one? The question is, why don't some of us share our faith with others? What's holding us back from screaming the good news from the rooftops? Or at least sharing it with those that are around us. Well, let me give us a few reasons why people aren't sharing Christ with others. Number one, many aren't sharing Christ with others because they struggle with people-pleasing. The first reason why many aren't sharing their faith with others is because they struggle with people-pleasing. The people-pleaser doesn't want to rock the boat or challenge others, so they stay away from sharing their faith. They tend to keep conversations on the surface level because that's where they feel safe. The problem with the people-pleaser is that their heart is focused on themselves more than others. They don't want to offend anyone or cause someone to be upset with them, so they withhold the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of saving faith, because they are worried about being rejected by others. I wonder if people-pleasing is hindering some of us from loving others by sharing Christ with them. I would say if that is us this morning, there is hope. Because we can be freed from people-pleasing. We can confess our sin of people-pleasing. And we can begin to walk through the fear and the selfishness that has controlled us, that has kept us in bondage, in a hostage for too long. And God in his mercy and grace will begin to free us from the struggle of people-pleasing as we love others enough to share the good news of Christ with them. Second reason why many aren't sharing Christ with others is because, number two, God's word isn't a part of their daily conversations. Number two says, God's word isn't a part of their daily conversations. It's not just sharing our faith, but for many of us, it is a foreign concept just to talk about the word of God with others in any, in every situation. We're not used to it. For many of us, it is because the word of God is not implanted in our hearts. We don't spend time reading and wrestling and studying the word of God. So what comes out of our mouths is really from our hearts, which usually is a mix of psychology, humanism, and what we learn from our family of origin. So we need to start. By learning the source, God's word. We need to have a time where we daily get into God's word and wrestle in the text, wrestle with different theologies and doctrines in the word of God, and then discuss what we are reading with other folks as well. But, but there are still others of us 
who do know God's word, but aren't used to connecting scripture to our everyday issues of life. So we aren't talking to others about Christ or God's word either. For example, if someone comes to us and says that they are really struggling with depression, we aren't sure how to apply God's word to their issues, so we don't say anything about scripture. And soon, God's word becomes irrelevant to us because we aren't depending on it in our daily life, which means this, actually, we're not depending on Christ then because the word of God is our authority. So I think a good starting point, which I didn't know Casey was going to do this, but a good starting point, a good foundation of making God's word active in our own lives starts in our homes. It's important, it's crucial to have Bible studies with our families. For example, in my home, we will usually have a family worship time in the evening, which consists of reading God's word, talking about it, and then we'll usually ask various questions that will specifically focus on the text. And then we will discuss how to apply those texts to the circumstances that many of us are facing, even some of my children. When the word of God becomes alive in us, we can't keep quiet about it, church. We want to share it with everyone. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of your hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I wonder if we're prepared to give a reason for our hope to anyone who asks us. Are we talking about God's word on a daily basis with others, including our family, including our spouse, including our children. I wonder how well we know God's word. Well, the third reason why many aren't sharing Christ with others, and I think this is a big one, because number three, they left their first love. The third reason why many aren't sharing their faith with others is because they left their first love. In Revelation 2, we see that the church at Ephesus, which was once a thriving church planted by the apostle Paul, had drifted away from Christ by the time John wrote the letter of Revelation. We find out that they have abandoned their first love, which was Christ Jesus. Like the church at Ephesus, we may have been passionate about Christ, but now we have lost our zeal. We have lost our desire. Our our deep love for Christ is waning. So maybe today we'll casually talk about Christian issues. But when it comes to Christ, we don't have a lot to say. We've become somewhat numb and disinterested in the person of Christ himself. We know he's Savior. We know he is Lord. He is King of Kings. We know all that. We've heard it, right? But that does not matter to us any longer because we've heard it so many times. We've moved on to other things. I wonder if this sounds like some of us this morning. Have we lost our first love? Has the passion, has the desire of Christ dried up within us? I'm afraid that many of us here are struggling with this this morning. That our relationship with Christ has grown cold. That we are now running on our past love. We are running on mere fumes of our relationship we once had with Christ. 
But leaving our first love means we have turned to other loves. Our affections, our desire, our heart has turned to the creation instead of the creator. What is it this morning we love? What is it that we love more than Christ? Is it self? Is it our job? Maybe we get significance from our job? Or is it our entertainment? Or is it in our marriages? Or is it in our good families? What is it that has taken first place in our hearts over Christ? Often it seems we lose our zeal for Christ when we stop spending time with him. When our quiet times with God isn't a priority any longer. When we are just too busy. I mean, there's just too much to do. So the first thing that goes is our commitment to Christ. Honestly, I ask you, church, how can we be passionate about Christ if we don't spend time with him? How can we say that he is number one in our life if we put everything else ahead of him. We read in scripture that Jesus prayed to the Father all night at times. He was close to the Father. He wanted to be in fellowship with his Father all the time. And likewise, we need to be close to to God as well. Close fellowship with him. Let me also add that True Christianity, having that close fellowship with God means we are in close fellowship with one another as well. True Christianity isn't lived alone. We are called to spend time with those within the church body to encourage and build one another up in the Lord. So to help foster this process of building relationship with others within the church, I am excited that soon we're going to be announcing that we're going to be launching a new one-to-one discipleship ministry. And this ministry will focus on rekindling your relationship with Christ Jesus. And the material we'll be using is called Seeking God by Nancy Lee DeMoss. It is awesome. And I'm excited to see how it will change and encourage us in the Lord. And it specifically focuses on revival. And revival simply means to be revived in our relationship with Christ. It's an interactive Bible study that you will do with one other person that will lead you through this that focuses on refreshing, renewing, and revitalizing our relationships with Christ. Oh, how we need that church. If revival is ever going to come to America, it starts with the church. So why not here in Marco Island, Florida, right? But let's go back to our passages where we are in John 14. And we're going to reread 6 and go through 11 here. And it says this. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. For now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe account of the works of themselves. 
Again, we see how the disciples still struggled understanding who Christ really was. As Christ even seems to be taken back, a little surprised by Philip's answer. Again, verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Philip didn't understand the gravity of what it meant that Christ was Messiah. And it's not just Philip, but it was all the disciples, right? They were blinded to the reality of who Christ really was. Even though they were in his presence daily. And similarly, church, we can become blind to who Christ is as well. We can put our hope in the things of this world instead of Christ, which leads to point number three, our final point. Our hope is found in Christ alone. Our hope is found in Christ alone. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I wonder if we know the way. Recognizing that Christ is our only path to be reconciled to God. Psalm 24, 3 through 5 tells us who will be accepted by God. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God. So who gives us clean hands, a pure heart? Who makes us righteous before God? And of course, the answer is who? Christ, right? Christ Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I wonder this morning if we know the truth. Jesus says, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free, right? Before we had the truth in Christ, we were blinded. We were, we were lost. We couldn't see the light. We couldn't find the way. But in Christ, church, We find all truth, not just some of the truth, but all truth. As Colossians says, that in Christ, we find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ, we learn the truth of salvation. In Christ, we learn the truth of God. In Christ, we learn the truth about ourselves. In Christ, we learn the truth about others. In Christ, we learn the truth about the afterlife. In Christ, we will continue to grow to know the truth even more. Amen? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. I wonder this morning if we know the life. Scripture says that a man without Christ is a walking corpse, a walking dead man. Not physically, but spiritually, they are dead. That means dead to God, under the wrath of God, under the judgment of God. But when they turn to Christ in repentance and faith, they are brought to new life through Christ. God says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. Are we alive in Christ this morning, church? Are we passionate, zealous for Christ? The life of Christ brings life into every area of our lives. Christ is alive in our marriages then. 
Christ is alive in our parenting. Christ is alive at our workplace. Christ is alive in our friendships. Christ is alive in us as we are sitting by ourselves thinking Christ is alive. Do you know Christ this morning? He is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, how we get so distracted by everything else. Help us just to sit at the feet of Christ and learn from him. Be excited about our relationship with Christ. Help us not to let even good things like theology take precedence over our relationship with Christ. But help us to know we lose right theology when we don't have Christ at the center of our theology. Help us, some of us who are distracted in the world, to get refocused on Christ. Help us to repent of the things that are controlling us, whether it's addictions, whether it's pride, whether it's anger, whether it's, like I already mentioned, good things like um, our families. Sometimes we even... Make idols out of good things that you bless us with. Help us to put Christ in Christ alone first in our hearts and lives. In Christ's name, amen.